All right, ladies, welcome to week eight. This is our last week of a full teaching. Next week, we're just going to have a little bit of a wrap up. Your workbook will be kind of like a little review. And then the teaching will just be kind of a review of some of the big themes in Galatians. So hopefully you're looking forward to that. Um, But before we dive into week eight here, let me go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of Galatians that has taught us so much about what it means to be saved by faith and not by works. It's taught us so much about what it means to be united to Christ and to one another. Um, And it's shown us that we are sons of God, that we are truly members of your family because of Jesus. Father, help us to see how all of those truths come together and how we should respond to them through um, chapter 6 of Galatians. There's so much important application here, but um, some of it can be twisted into things that it's not meant to be. So God, I just pray that you would give my teaching clarity today and that you would use your spirit to help each of us to apply this text rightly to our own circumstances. Thank you for your word, Father, and thank you for your son. Amen. Last week, we talked about the freedom that we have in Christ, and it leads us to fulfill the law through love. Paul told us that true freedom means not living by the flesh, so our sinful nature, but living by the Spirit, our God-given new nature. This week, Paul wraps up his letter with specific instructions for how God's people should walk by the Spirit in Christian community, and we do that in the church. He also concludes the letter with a final resounding rejection of the Judaizers because they've disrupted the fellowship of the Galatian churches with their false teachings. Let's read uh, starting back in chapter 5 verse 24 so we can see how Paul's train of thought continues between the chapters. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. The first thing we should notice is how, in verses 25 and 26, Paul once again contrasts the work of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. If you aren't in step with the Spirit, you may fall in step with the flesh. The result is being conceited or provoking or envying one another. Remember back to 5.15, Paul warned the Galatian believers that if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It seems like the Galatian believers have taken to fighting amongst themselves instead of battling the desires of the flesh in their own hearts. Based on what comes next in chapter 6 verse 1, it seems like the Galatian believers have become so divided in their mentality and puffed up with pride in their own righteousness that they've been feeling superior when other believers are struggling with sin. Paul says that those who are spiritual, which is probably just spiritually mature, it says that they should gently and humbly seek to restore a believer who's caught in sin. 
This could mean graciously hearing the confession of a believer who feels trapped in a pattern of sin that they cannot escape. It might also mean confronting a believer about a sin that they've been trying to keep secret or are unaware of, and doing so with equal humility. So why must we approach others this way when they're caught in sin? Paul says, lest you too be tempted. Approaching the sins of others with pride and conceit is a sin in itself, and it opens the door to more sin for everyone involved. Remember that conceit, provocation, and envy that Paul mentioned just a minute ago. We leave ourselves wide open to temptation when we look at the sins of others and think, well, I could never do something so horrible, or I'm glad I'm not such a terrible sinner like they are. And that attitude isn't at all likely to help someone trapped in sin to be moved toward repentance. It also does nothing to restore them to fellowship with the family of God. And that should always be our goal, the restoration of those who legitimately repent. Now, I can't move past this section without addressing some concerns that you may have about what it means for someone to be restored to fellowship after sin. This passage isn't an exhaustive manual on that. It's really addressing the attitude that we should have toward others when they're caught in sin. There are other passages like 1 Corinthians 15 or Matthew 18 that offer a more detailed instruction for these situations. Someone who continues in their sin, who tries to hide it, minimizes the seriousness of it, or blames others for it, those people have not repented, and they should be expelled from fellowship. Someone who's caught in sin and truly repents should be forgiven and welcomed in the church. Now, discerning what true repentance looks like, that requires a lot of prayer, time, and wisdom. It's also important to realize that restoration doesn't mean everything goes back to the way that it was. That person's role in the church may need to change. Restoration also doesn't preclude involving the police if laws have been broken. Now, even if that isn't necessary, some sins may disqualify someone from participating in certain ministries or from church leadership roles altogether. A church leader, and particularly a pastor or elder, may sin in a way that disqualifies them from all future ministry, even if they have repented. The qualifications and characteristics of an elder are described in passages like 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, Titus 1, 7 through 9, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and Acts 20, 17 through 35. They include a call for elders to be above reproach, and that's a high bar. Gently restoring a believer to fellowship doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for sinful actions. It means that we should approach the sins of others with grace and a loving desire for them to repent. When we restore wayward believers with gentle humility, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We often see this verse used as a general encouragement for believers to help each other, especially with material needs and emotional support, and that's a valid encouragement. We should totally be doing those things. But based on the context, I think that the better reading for this passage is that it's particularly referring to spiritual burdens that we should be bearing for one another. Those other needs, they're still really important. They're just going to be addressed later in verses 9 and 10. The spiritual burdens seem to be specifically related to the burden of being trapped in sin. 
We bear one another's burdens when we confess our sin to other trusted believers and when we humbly and graciously receive such confession from other believers as well. We bear one another's burdens when we encourage one another to flee from sin and walk in step with the Spirit. This fulfills the law of Christ, the whole law summed up in one word, of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. What more loving thing can we do for another believer than to gently encourage them to live out the freedom that they have in Christ? It is a deeply loving thing to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to freely walk in step with the Spirit instead of being enslaved to the law or to the flesh. But verse 3 warns us, If we are puffed up in self-righteousness and look down on the sins of others, we can't help bear their spiritual burdens. We are self-deceived. We've lost sight of our own need for the gospel. We won't be of use in pointing any other believer toward repentance if we're blind to our own desperate need for it. So what should we do? Paul says in verses 4 and 5 that we should test our own work so that we can boast in ourselves and not in our neighbor. We each have our own load to bear. At face value, this may seem to contradict other parts of the letter, especially a passage that's going to come up in just a minute. Isn't Paul just about to say that he only boasts in the cross? In what sense should we boast in ourselves? Paul also just said that we should bear one another's burdens, so why are we now carrying our own load? To figure this out, first let's look at boasting in ourselves rather than in others. Paul isn't encouraging the Galatians to brag about their holiness. He's telling them to stop measuring their own righteousness by comparing themselves to others. We feed our pride by thinking, at least I'm not as bad as she is, or, well, I'm no worse than that other person. That is spiritual scorekeeping. It is not of the Spirit. That divides the family of God that should be united in Christ. When we engage in spiritual scorekeeping, we forget that we have all been saved by his blood from an equally hopeless state because of our sin. We are all equally made righteous before God by faith. So we have nothing to boast about except in the cross, just as Paul is about to say. But we are each accountable for the way that we use the gifts God has given us to serve him. This isn't about comparing our gifts against what God has given to others. It's about stewarding the gifts that he has given us and embracing our God-given limitations. That is what it means to bear our own load. That is what we give an account for. And this leads us to the next section, where Paul has instructions for us on how to be good stewards of God's gifts. Here's verses 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. One part of being a good steward of the gifts that God has given us is by giving back to the ministries that serve us. Especially in the context of membership in a local church, we should not be passively receiving the benefits of church community without contributing to the work of ministry as we're able. 
The most clear and obvious application of sharing all good things with the one who teaches is by financial generosity. Our financial giving allows pastors and other staff members to do the work of ministry that serves us and other members of our church. This is also something that we should consider regarding other ministries that we regularly learn from as well. So if you're benefiting from the teaching of a particular Christian podcast or other organization, you should seriously consider how you might financially support their work. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that the church exists to serve us when we have the means to support the ministry and we choose not to. God can't be fooled. He knows what means he's given us and what he hasn't. He knows our hearts, if we're giving with a generous heart or with a stingy one, if we're giving joyfully or out of legalistic obligation. The last part of verse 7 through verse 8 contains a gardening metaphor. You reap what you sow, or in other words, what you plant is what you harvest. If you plant just a little bit, your crop will be small, and if you plant a lot, your crop will be large. Now, let's be really clear. This verse has been sorely abused by unscrupulous prosperity gospel preachers to manipulate their audiences into giving far beyond their financial means. And they do so with a promise that their seed money is going to come back to them tenfold in the form of worldly riches. This is not at all what this passage is promising. And that's obvious if you look at the context. This passage isn't just about money. It's about all the good gifts that God has given us. We can sow to the Spirit with our finances, certainly. But we can also do so by using our time, energy, and spiritual gifts to invest in God's kingdom. The person who has little money to give to the church but volunteers their time to serve in children's ministries or on the worship team is still serving the Lord in a meaningful way, and they're doing no less so than the person who has more money to give. We are all tempted to sow to the flesh, to use what God has given us, our money, time, and spiritual gifts, to serve ourselves. We want to create our own little earthly kingdom, and if we give in to that desire, If that's what we plant, then that's what we harvest. A pile of worldly pleasures that we won't be able to take with us in the end. But if we sow to the Spirit by giving back what God has given us to serve Him and His people, then that's what we harvest. We store up treasures in heaven that will last into eternity. We are not saved by our generosity. But the way that we use our resources of time, our gifts, our material resources... Those are all an outward expression of a heart that's being ruled either by the flesh or by the spirit. With all that in mind, Paul gives us some much-needed encouragement in verse 9. Continue to do good, even when it is exhausting and thankless. Even when it seems like the seeds that we've planted aren't growing at all. Why? Because at the right time, there will be a harvest. If we don't give up. Doing good, serving God, doesn't always yield immediate or desirable results. You might share the gospel with someone and make them angry. Your child might become sullen and withdrawn when you have lovingly disciplined them for wrong behavior. You may provide a shoulder to cry on for a friend who is never there for you when you need them. You may work hard at your job and still always get passed over for the promotion that you've been working toward. Paul is telling us to keep planting even when it seems like the seeds won't grow. 
There will be a harvest if we don't give up. The harvest may look different, or it might come later than you expected. We might not see it this side of eternity. We might go to our graves wondering if we made a positive impact in this world at all, but the Spirit will continue its work long after we are gone. We can trust that God will not allow the gifts we've offered back to Him to go to waste. There will be a harvest. I think this is a particularly helpful encouragement to us now in this weird season that's been brought on by the pandemic. I think most of us are trying to do good. We're doing our best to honor God in this season, but we feel stuck or like our efforts are being wasted. We've been working hard to school our kids at home, but they are miserable and we worry that they're falling behind. We invest ourselves in trying to love others during this difficult time, but the people we love are still floundering because of situations that we can't control. Even in this difficult season, don't give up. By the power of the Spirit in us, there will be a harvest. Our efforts to do good to one another in this time will not be wasted. Paul's final thought to sum up this section on doing good is this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I think it would be really easy to get overwhelmed by the idea of needing to do good to everyone if we gloss over the part that says, as we have opportunity. Yes, do good to everyone. But, thinking back to verse 5, remember to bear your own load. God equips us for the work he has called us to do. We do not have to bear the burden of meeting every need that we encounter. I don't know about you, but I am often completely overwhelmed by how much need there is in the world. There are so many good causes and ministries that need our prayers, our time, and our money. It can be difficult to choose where to give and to not feel like our small contributions are meaningless. They're never enough. God has given you a finite amount of resources. And that is what you are accountable to him for. That is your load. You don't need to feel guilty for not contributing what God hasn't given. God knows when you've lost your income and are unable to contribute financially to the church for a season. He knows when your parents are aging and caring for them means stepping back from volunteering in some ministries at church for a time. God knows if he's made you to serve the church on the worship team or the finance team but not by leading a Bible study or teaching Sunday school. Serve as you have the opportunity, as you've been gifted, without comparing to other people. Now, we know that we're supposed to serve everyone as we have opportunity, but who do we serve? We must especially serve those who are of the household of faith. We should have a special concern to care for other believers, and particularly those who are part of our local church. Why? because we're united to Christ and so to each other. Although differences in culture, class, and gender that we talked about back in chapter, uh, end of chapter three, beginning of chapter four, um, though those things would otherwise divide us, our union with Christ makes us a loving family. The way that we love other believers in spite of our differences should be a sign to unbelievers that points them to the hope that we have in Jesus. Our love for one another should be so remarkable, so compelling, that unbelievers are drawn in by the beauty of the gospel at work. This is what true fulfillment of the law of Christ looks like, to love God by loving his family, the church. 
Finally, Paul ends his letter by apparently taking the pen from the scribe who's been copying down the letter for him and writing in his own hand. This last passage mainly reiterates everything that he said before. Here's verses uh, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. In verses 11 through 13, Paul is saying, Those false teachers, what they want is for you to be circumcised so that they can make themselves look good and avoid being persecuted by the Jewish circumcision party. They may be circumcised, but even they don't keep the law. But they still want you to follow it by being circumcised so they can brag about their influence over you. By contrast, in verses 14 through 17, we are reminded that Paul hasn't avoided persecution. He has literal scars where he bears on his body the marks of Jesus because he refused to compromise on the one authentic gospel. Paul also won't brag about anything besides everything Christ has done for him. He knows that he's received his righteousness before God through Christ, so he no longer has to worry about earning it by obeying the law. He knows that to be enslaved to sin or to the law can only lead to spiritual death. So that temptation has been put to death inside him. This is true of all believers. We have been made new. We are new creations. We've been given Christ's righteousness and his spirit is at work in us to make us like Jesus. To change our hearts to desire what is good and to hate what is evil. The world doesn't have anything desirable to offer us because we know that we have everything we need in Jesus. Those who walk by this rule, who live by this law, they have peace and mercy as the true members of God's family, the Israel of God. To this family, to the Galatians, and to us, Paul offers a prayer that the grace that Jesus offers would be present with our spirits. The grace that has made us fully righteous without any need to earn it. Grace that allows us to be filled with the Spirit so that we can freely walk by the Spirit. Grace that allows us to see one another as one in Christ, in spite of differences that may try to divide us. It is the grace of the one authentic gospel that makes us one family in Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the book of Galatians. Father, please help us to honor you by confronting other believers in their sin when necessary, but especially by doing so in a way that is humble and not at all in, infected by pride. God, help us to bear the burdens of other believers, the spiritual burdens, in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus. Father, help us also to remember to carry our own load. 
Help us not to fall into the pit of spiritual scorekeeping that would make us view other believers as competition. Lord, also use your spirit to help give us joy in sharing all good things with those who lead us through your church and through other ministries. Help us to um, remember that we cannot hide anything from you um, and that the things that you have given us, we are accountable to you for. Um, So help give us joy in sharing not just our money, but also our time and all of our resources Um, with the church, with our fellow believers, um, and help us to to just give them back to you um, by serving other people. Father, help us to be those who are characterized by sowing in the Spirit. Help us to invest in the things that are eternal. Help us not to grow weary in doing good. Father, I see so much weariness in the world right now um, after everything that happened in the year 2020, and it is easy to be weary and to be tempted to give up. Father, help us to encourage one another, to love one another in a way that we will um, keep spurring one another on to the good deeds that you've called us to do. Help us to keep doing good, even when it feels thankless or hopeless. God, we also ask that you would make GBC a church that is characterized by doing good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Help us to do good to our community, but but help us to exemplify the love of Jesus in the way that we love one another. Help that to be a beacon for the gospel in our community. Father, finally, we thank you that we are new creations, that because of the cross of Jesus, we can be free from our slavery to law and to sin, and that we can have a new life in you. God, please help us to live in the newness that you have created us to be. Help us to reject sin that once held us captive and to live in freedom through obedience and love. Father, thank you for the women of GBC. Thank you for this time that we've been able to do this study together. Um, And God, I pray that as they are looking back on our time in Galatians, as they're doing the final um, week of the study, um, that you would use your spirit to show them the things that you want them to take away from this study. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.